Uh, today, <clears throat> today's scripture reading is from Matthew 6, 19, uh, 24. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. This is the word of the Lord. Need some water after all that singing. Good morning. It's good to be with you guys this morning. Uh, my name is Chris Boston. I'm one of the elders here at Hope Christian Church. And uh, I want to start off by saying thank you to Pastor Todd uh, for his faithfulness in preaching through the book of Matthew. Last week we looked at uh, fasting. And uh, of all the things, Pastor Todd, you could have mentioned we need to fast from sports talk radio. Uh, that one hit me pretty hard. Uh, I'm a big sports talk radio buff, and uh, as I'm sure many of you know, uh, the NBA playoffs are upon us. And uh, so a couple things struck me. Uh, one was I was amazed at how much comfort I got from listening to sports talk radio. When it wasn't there, I, I found myself longing for it in a strange kind of way. Uh, another thing I, I found out is that uh, we have a, a budding sports talk radio host in our home. Our, my nine-year-old gave me updates every morning, so <laughs> I'm still up to date. I, uh, spoiler alert, the Celtics are still in it. So, <laughs> um, But all kidding aside, you know, fasting this past week from something as small as, as uh, talk radio is just another reminder of how easy it is for our hearts to become tethered to the things of this world. And, you know... As we'll see in a moment, there are many things that we feel we can let go of that, that often have greater importance in our lives than we, we might want to admit. Um, so I, I don't preach very often. Uh, I do preach on occasion. And as, they, as Todd approached me about being an elder, one of the things that I dreaded the most was probably preaching. I just thought, I, I went to seminary, but I never took a class in seminary on preaching. And I was like, Lord, I can do anything but preach. Don't, don't call me to preach. <laughs> And so I, I really dread it. But what I've found, yeah, what I've found is that I really come to, I've come to look forward to it. And one of the reasons I've come to look forward to it is, is because I, I find that I really enjoy preaching the gospel to myself. And I would encourage you too, maybe, uh, you know, not necessarily in public, but if you want to preach the gospel to yourself. By the time I come up to preach to you, I preach this message to myself several times over and over just preaching the gospel to yourselves. I would encourage you to do that. Just sit yourself down. You probably need a good preaching to. Preach the gospel to yourself. So as we begin this morning, let's, let's pray. Let's go before the Lord um, before, we, before I preach. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity again to come into your word. Father, we thank you that we have these very words of Jesus, a sermon that he preached many, many years ago. 
Father, they're still relevant today. These words are still relevant to us. But Father, these, these are not easy truths. Lord, they, these are hard truths. Father, we need your spirit in order to obey, to trust and obey these truths. Lord, there's nothing that I'm gonna bring this morning that's novel. There's nothing new that I have to say. You know that. There are no quick fixes. In fact, there's, there's actually a lot of effort that's, that's uh, involved here. And we need your help for that. We need your spirit to help us in that. Father, I just pray as we speak about money and possessions this morning, Lord, would you, for those who have an ear to hear, Lord, would you, would you let them hear what you want to say to them this morning? I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we are working our way through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And the topic before us this morning is, is money and possessions. So let me first say this was not intentional on Todd's part to have the lay elder preach on money. Um, I actually, I was reading through the book of Mark in my daily reading, and uh, Mark 10, 25 talks about how it's, um, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter heaven. And I thought, yes, Lord, this is what I need to preach on next. And so I was going to preach on that, and then Todd said, hey, you're interested in preaching on the next section of the Sermon on the Mount? I was like, well, what, it, what is it? It's laying up treasures in heaven. So I was like, hey, I, I got my text. I know exactly what I need to preach on. So there's somebody here, maybe all of you here, that need to hear this sermon. But how relevant is the Bible, right? Isn't it amazing? I'm so glad the Bible touches on every aspect of our life. There is no aspect of our lives that the Bible doesn't hit. And there's probably no more relevant topic for us in this context than that of money and possessions. Our church is situated in one of the most affluent towns, in one of the most affluent states, in the most affluent country on earth. If we were to put a percentage on this probability, I can assure you it would be very, very low. You know, when our family first moved to Boston several years ago from Kentucky, guys, I thought I was playing with Monopoly money. I was like, rent cannot cost that much. <laughs> that was, it's crazy. You know, not only that, but the wealth here is tied to a knowledge in a way that I've never experienced before. Every conversation here seems to start with some variation of, well, you know, there's a study that shows. I'm like, how, many, how do you know all these studies? <laughs> I mean, I, now I've been, I, I'm guilty of this too. I found myself starting sentences that way. Um, but it's just the context in which we live. We're living in a society that knows too much, spends too much, hoards too much, and stresses out way too much. There's no wonder that some have compared our society with that of Babel in the Old Testament. We're amusing ourselves to death, and we're blindly praising ourselves and patting ourselves on the back all along in the process. So what does this mean for us? Well, for starters, we've got to be vigilant. Don't fool yourself. Don't fool yourself into thinking that you're beyond any temptation to elevate money to an improper place in your heart. We live in a world saturated by conveniences that no other human in history has ever experienced. And there's a reason why Jesus says that the road that leads to life is narrow and few find it. And why he says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter heaven. So here in these few verses, we find Jesus preaching to a Roman culture that really wasn't that different from our own in terms of its opulence. But he casts a new vision, a vision of a heavenly kingdom, one in which the last shall be first, where its constituents are rewarded for what is done in secret rather than what's done in public, 
and one that required a greater righteousness than that of the religious leaders of the day. And this heavenly kingdom is in direct contrast to the kingdoms of earth, the kingdom of man. So I want us to look this morning at three ways that Jesus' kingdom is different from man's kingdom. So I've only got three points, three ways that Jesus' kingdom is different from man's kingdom. First, in verses 19 to 21. So we see that man's kingdom is seen and that that the kingdom of God is unseen. Look with me at verses 19 to 21. It says this, Matthew chapter 6. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now when it comes to storing up treasures on earth, Americans in particular have taken this to new heights, right? If you plan to do any driving this summer, you're likely to see some version of this on the road. Now I I love this photo because not only do you have bikes on the back of the camper hitched to a boat, but you also have a storage unit on top of the camper for that extra luggage. (laughs) So another example of America's overabundance can also be seen in the $29 billion self-storage industry. The self-storage industry in America, especially coming off the heels of the pandemic, is booming. It's estimated that 38% of Americans are self-storage users, with Gen Xers topping the list at 54%. And apparently home size doesn't even matter. 42% of residents with homes between 2,500 and 3,500 square feet still use storage units. The fact that treasures on earth decay quickly actually really hit home with me this past week. I was really disappointed. I went to my favorite coffee shop, got this really cool coffee mug. I literally, I took it home, I sat the top of the mug on the counter, went to pick it up, and it broke. I was like, are you kidding me? This... So, guys, we all know this, that stuff on earth decays faster than we might want to think. So now, this notion, this notion of literally burying one's treasure that talks about here in, in verse 19 is, of course, a little bit foreign to us today. I mean, it's not uncommon to hear stories of people, you know, finding cash in, inside walls or under couches or, or things like that. But in a culture where there's no local bank, a person's special belongings were often kept buried at home or in a safe place. People would bury their prized possessions, which meant that they would be very subject to decay. Now, when I think about this idea of storing up treasures in homes, I think about my father-in-law. So, my father-in-law, before he passed, uh, he used to live, he was Ethiopian, he used to live half the year in Ethiopia and half the year in Europe. And one of the things he was always amazed at when he would come to visit us in the States was how all the homes in the States, especially even the large homes, don't have huge fences surrounding them. They don't have security guards. They don't have gates and all these kinds of things. He just couldn't get over the fact that Americans seemingly didn't care about protecting their wealth. This, of course, is because in Africa, people like to keep their wealth in their homes. And most Americans, you know, we're not storing gold bars or wads of cash under our beds. In fact, much of our wealth is not even immediately accessible. But whether wealth is immediately accessible or not, Jesus reminds us that we're not taking it with us when we die. Not only this, but what truly matters can't be seen. 
What truly matters is the disposition of your heart. The heart is your inner person, your character, what you are when nobody's looking. Over and over again in the Sermon on the Mount, we read how those who give, pray, fast, to be seen, not to be seen by men, but to be seen by the Father, they are the ones who will be rewarded. You know, I like how the New Living Translation translates uh, verse 21. It actually says this. It says, for where your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will be also. Only God sees the true desires of your heart. The fact that they're invisible doesn't make them any more or less real to God. Consider Jesus' earlier statements about lust. If anyone looks with lustful intent at a woman, he's what? He's committed adultery. What about anger? If anyone is angry at their brother, has committed murder. Perhaps one of the more salient examples of how God views the heart of man is seen in the parable of the widow's offering. So in Mark's gospel, we have this story about a widow. And as people are coming to give um, their offerings in the offering plate, there are several rich people that put in large sums of money into the offering box. And then here comes this widow, two small coins, a day's, a day's labor. It's only a fraction of a cent. She puts them in the offering box. And from the outside looking in, it would seem that that widow's offering was very insignificant. However, Jesus says that she gave more than all those who contributed. Why? Because Jesus saw her heart. He knew that she gave all that she had, while the rich gave from their surplus. Now, if, you, if you've spent much time in downtown Boston, uh, maybe you've seen the Holocaust exhibit. It's an amazing exhibit. It's uh, close to the Boston market. It's my daughter, Esther, uh, reading some of the quotes there. If not, I'd, I'd totally recommend that you check it out. You know, it's just one more example of how some of the greatest acts of kindness can come from great acts of evil. And if you go, one of the things you'll find there are quotes from Holocaust survivors written on the large panes of glass, like Esther's reading here. As I was reading them, one in particular caught my attention. And this, this is what it says. A childhood friend of mine once found a raspberry in the camp and carried it in her pocket all day to present to me that night on a leaf. Imagine a world in which your entire possession is one raspberry and you give it to your friend. With this in mind, my question to you this morning is what are you giving to God? Are you giving out of your surplus or are you giving in such a way that it costs you something? If someone were to walk into your home or follow you around for a week, would it be obvious that the desires of your heart are to store up heavenly treasures or would they find that your priorities are really in setting up your own kingdom here on this earth? Another contrast that we notice here is found in verses 22 to 23. We see that man's kingdom with its money and possessions is temporal, while the kingdom of heaven is lasting, it's eternal. Let's read verses 22 and 23. It says this, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? You know, I don't know about you, when I first read these verses, I was a little taken aback. You know, they kind of felt a little bit out of place to me. I wasn't really sure what to do with it. I almost thought for a while, it's like, I'm just going to preach on, I'm just going to skip this. I'm going to focus on these other passages that are a little more straightforward. Um, 
But you know, the more I researched these verses, the more I found that they're actually very much in line with what Jesus is saying. You know, scholars debate what this metaphor of the eye as a lamp of the body could mean. And as you might imagine, the idea of the eye being the lamp of the body is, is really, it's not a common metaphor in Scripture. Now, I'll save you the back and forth of the debate and just let you know that the most scholars believe the purpose of describing the eye as a lamp here is to show that the eye illuminates the true inner character or a person's inner character or heart. When I think of this picture of the eye being bad, um, I can't help but think of Lord of the Rings. I'm a big Lord of the Rings fan, and those of you who know Lord of the Rings, um, look, I, I don't think it was an accident that Tolkien uses an eye, the eye of Sauron, right, to personify greed and darkness in his trilogy. And one of the more compelling reasons for this interpretation that the eye illuminates the body is the juxtaposition of the Greek words translated here, healthy and bad, in verses 22 and 23. So first, this word healthy, hoplos in Greek, connotes, connotes an idea of soundness or single-mindedness, but it can also have the translation of generous. And I think this last translation seems to make the most sense, given that it forms a direct counterpart to what Jesus says later about the bad eye, or in Greek is ophthalmus poneros, which connotes this idea of stinginess or greediness or jealousy. So given this translation and interpretation, so what is Jesus saying? What Jesus is saying here is that the person who is generous has a right perspective on life. They understand that this world with its so-called treasures is only temporary. They're living for another world. And so not only do they not desire the things of this world, but they willingly give up their possessions to help others. I really like how Randy Alcorn, I don't know if you've read Randy Alcorn's book, Money, Possessions, and Eternity. I really like how he describes this mentality that Christians should have on this earth. He calls it a pilgrim mentality. Guys, we need to have a pilgrim mentality. It's this mentality, it's like a, we're just passing through mentality. It doesn't get too bogged down in the affairs of this world or fall too much in love with the things that this world loves. A pilgrim mentality. So my, my wife's family uh, lives overseas and because of that, we end up taking a lot of long plane flights. And, um, you know, I'm always amazed on plane flights, uh, especially recent, the last couple ones I've been on, of the inventive ways that passengers attempt to pass the time and make themselves comfortable. You know, but one thing I've never seen on a plane, on a long plane flight, is someone pull out a window curtain, put it over the window, you know, take a couple family photos out, pin them to the seat back in front of them. The reason for this is obvious, right? The, the, whole, the whole point of the flying is, is to get to the destination. We're not there to set up shop. We're not there to set up home. By the time you get to where you're going, none of that time on the plane really matters. You know, our time on earth is a little bit like that plane flight. It's not meant to be our final home, only the temporary means to get to our final home. This means that we shouldn't be pitching our tent here. Or as one of my favorite artists and theologians, Sarah Grove says, painting pictures of Egypt. But how often do we as Christians start setting up shop here on earth as if this is the destination? We have our six months expenses in the bank, we have our emergency fund, we have enough retirement income to retire at 55 and, 
uh, to retire at 55 and, and last until we're 105. You know, none of these measures are bad in and, of them, in and of themselves. In fact, they're quite prudent. But if we're relying on them for security and comfort and not God, we may want to question whether we have a true pilgrim mentality. So Alcorn, in his book that I just mentioned, he calls Christians to think of their lives in terms of a dot and a line. I think this is really helpful. It's very simple. Um, so the dot and the line signify two phases. The dot signifies our life on earth. The line signifies, the line with the arrow represents our life in heaven. He then asks the question, what are you living for? Are you living for the dot or are you living for the line? So let me ask you, are you living for the dot with its temporal pleasures or for the line? Now, don't get me wrong, guys, life on the dot can be pretty good. God created this world to be enjoyed, but it's only a dot. It's only a brief moment in time when compared to eternity. Jesus, the wedding supper of the Lamb, the new heavens and the new earth, all of those things are on the line. Having a generous heart is living for the line. Stinginess and greed, on the other hand, can be justified only if you're living for the dot. You know, one of, one of the beauties, and I, I think many of you have probably found this to be true, one of the beauties of a generous life is that it's a lightweight life. You know what I mean? It's a lightweight life. You know, pilgrims, they just carry less. If you're living for the line, there's no need to take more on your journey than what you need. Tertullian, an early church father, once said it like this. He said, and so it is that when a man walks along a road, the lighter he travels, the happier he is. Equally, on this journey of life, a man is more blessed if he does not pant beneath a burden of riches. If you've ever wondered why life on the dot is so burdensome, is so hard, then you may want to consider lightening your load. Kind of, it reminds me of the story I once heard about a Mexican fisherman and a New York businessman. So this New York businessman goes to Mexico and he strikes up a conversation with the Mexican fisherman and he says, um, hey, what do, you, what do you do all day? How do you spend your days? And the fisherman said, well, you know, I fish a couple hours in the morning and after that I just kind of take it easy. I, you know, spend the rest of the day hanging out with my friends, relaxing on the beach, playing music. So the businessman, thinking that the fisherman was just lazy, uh, quickly responded with, you know, why don't you consider fishing more? I mean, come on, you can start a fishing business, you can employ other fishermen, you make a lot more money, then you can retire early. The fisherman looked a bit puzzled and he replied, well, what would I do then? Well, said the businessman, then you could spend your days hanging out with friends, relaxing on the beach, playing music. <laughs> How often do we think, how often do we make things more complicated than they were meant to be? Because we fall into this trap of thinking that more is always more. When it's often the case that less is actually more. One of my prayers in life is found in Proverbs 30, verses 6 to 9. And this is what the writer says to God. He says, two things I ask of you. Deny them not to me before I die. Remove from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. In other words, satisfy all my needs, lest I be full and deny you. 
and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane, profane the name of my God. Guys, God has promised to satisfy all our needs. And I know that we can all attest that he often does far more than that. The question for most of us this morning is not, will God supply all of my needs? No, it's how much is enough? I like what John Piper says. He says, there's nothing wrong with a $250,000 salary. There's no reason to think that a $250,000 salary needs to be accompanied by a $250,000 lifestyle. There's nothing inherently wrong with money. It can be used for amazing good, for immense good. Yes. It is an apology. I, I really appreciate hearing you. I, I tell you the first, from the first time, I said, here's one of, one of the good Lord's people here. But the thing is, we have to leave. I apologize. Every other time, we are in commitment to talk to some people who only speak Spanish. Not only that, they are alcoholic. I've been working for them for about three years. And so this is our day, and uh, All right. we have to leave. Thanks for letting me know, Joseph. Thank you. And yep. God bless. Thank you. Yes, thanks well, so much. Thanks for the prayers. <laughs> Joseph is my good friend. Thanks for letting me know. All right. So, I, I, love, I love what Piper says. And this, this one probably hit me the hardest about the lifestyle. But you, it is true, guys, that money can be used for amazing good. There's so many life-saving technologies that are funded by money. Uh, there are untold examples of, of human flourishing all around the world. Um, because of what money has enabled that, uh, because money has enabled that to happen. You know, one of the joys of pastoring here at Hope, guys, it's, it's an amazing joy. One of the biggest joys is that we're a generous church. Hope Christian Church is a generous church, and the Lord has blessed many in our congregation financially, and we've been able to turn those blessings around and bless others. You know, much of our elders' meetings are taken up by thinking of ways uh, to bless others with the abundance that, that Christ has given us. And in fact, many of you have, have been the recipient of these blessings. Um, as Steve mentioned last Sunday, 20% of our budget goes to support mission partners, numerous mission partners all around the world. So my encouragement to you this morning is to not stop here. Let's keep giving generously. Let's lighten our loads. Don't let money be a burden. As Alcorn says in his book, Giving produces freedom 100% of the time. Giving produces freedom 100% of the time. People were needed to support Jesus' itinerant ministry. Joseph of Arimathea, of course, he gave up his, his burial tomb. And Paul and Barnabas were in constant need of financial support. Please pray with us as elders about how we can continue to support kingdom work all around the world. Okay, so we made our way to verse 24. Let's look at verse 24. So far, we've seen how the kingdom of man is seen and the kingdom of heaven is unseen, how the kingdom of man is temporal and how the kingdom of heaven is eternal. Look with, with, look with me now at one final contrast. The kingdom of man enslaves while the kingdom of heaven liberates. So verse 24 reads like this. No one can serve two masters for either he'll hate the one and love the other or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You can't serve 
God and money. Guys, in case his listeners were still wondering, like, Jesus, what are you talking about? He lays the hammer down. He just makes it plain and clear. You cannot serve God and money. Notice he doesn't say no one should serve God and should serve two masters. No, he unequivocally states that no one can serve two masters. Simply put, you cannot serve God and material possessions. I often joke with my wife, I often joke, I do joke with my wife, but I also joke that my wife uh, is a Laodicean kind of woman. Maybe you remember in the book of Revelation, the church in Laodicea was, was lukewarm. They were neither hot nor cold, and they were scolded for that. Rahel is never lukewarm. Uh, she likes her coffee really hot. She likes her water really cold. And no matter what time of the year it is, she's never warm enough. But all kidding aside, the Bible is a book of sharp contrast. All over the place we see these dichotomies. You're either for God or you're against him. You either hate sin or you love it. You're either hot or you're cold. You either serve money or you serve God. There's no in between. So what's it going to be? Are you going to serve money or are you going to serve God? There's a reason why the Bible devotes twice as many verses to money, over 2,000 of them, than to faith and prayer combined. Why Jesus spends 15% of his recorded words on the topic of money. And why 80% of divorced people say that financial issues played a primary role in the destruction of their marriage. It's true to say that your relationship to money, how you spend it, the amount of time you spend thinking about it, the care with which you protect it is a spiritual barometer that measures where your true desires lie. Now, when I first began thinking of what I was going to say this morning, um, I had the idea of talking, of, of taking each of the Beatitudes in Matthew 5 and replacing the first half with blessed are the rich, dot, 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 and just kind of see how ridiculous that would sound. That is until I found out that Luke actually does something very similar in his gospel. So look with me at Luke chapter 6, verse 24 to 26. So here, after he lists some of the Beatitudes that we find in Matthew's gospel, Luke includes uh, these woes that are also spoken by Jesus. So it looks like our, we don't have our slide. So Luke, let me read that verse again. Oh, here it is. Luke chapter 6, verse 24 to 26. Okay. But woe to you who are rich, for you, re- you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all, pe- when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Anyone who's fallen prey to the lures of money and things can surely attest to the self-destructive nature that comes from the love of money. Like a child who wades out too deep into the water and gets sucked under by a swift undertow, money and possessions will not tell you when you've gone too far. 1 Timothy 6, 9-10, a passage that many of us probably know well, especially when it comes to this topic. It says it like this, and I think we, sometimes we focus on verse 10. I think it's good for us to look at, at, the, at verses 9 and 11 as well. Or, I'm sorry, verse 9. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. 
For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. The only thing that the love of money can bring is enslavement. We all know people with some, some with the best intentions who become enslaved to the fallacy that all of life's problems can be solved with a change in environment. With just a little bit more money, a better paying job. But like Lloyd-Jones says, they conveniently overlook the fact that it was in paradise that man fell. The reality is that the promises of this world will never deliver. They can't. They were never intended to. This is because we were made for another world. Like C.S. Lewis famously said, he said, if we find in ourselves desires that no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. Pilgrim mentality. We're only sojourners here on the dot. So where does this leave us? It leaves us with a choice. Either we choose to believe the lies of the kingdom of man that tell us that money will solve all of our problems or that we're not like others, we're not susceptible to the siren call of earthly possessions. After all, it's not like we've set up shrines in our homes to bow the knee to money. Or we choose to forego the fleeting pleasures of this life for the eternal pleasures that await us. We need to examine ourselves honestly. Do our lives show that we are more concerned with the unseen and eternal or that we're more concerned with holding tightly to a nicer home, a faster car, the latest designer clothes, maybe that new Nintendo game? I know, I know the third and sixth graders are with us. Are you still with me? The new Nintendo game that just came out. Again, none of these things are necessarily bad in and of themselves. But what's the message that we're sending to the outside world? If God has blessed you with much, then be generous. If you find yourself praying, God, give me my daily bread, because you're finding it hard to put bread on the table, then know that God will satisfy all your needs and that this life is only a dot. There's a story told of John Wesley in which uh, he was once invited by a wealthy plantation owner to see his property. The two rode horses all day, and they only saw a fraction of all that the man owned. And at the end of the day, the plantation owner proudly asked Wesley, well, Mr. Wesley, what do you think? After a moment of silence, Wesley replied, I think you're going to have a hard time leaving all of this. If you've ever had that thought, and I'm, I'm guilty of it, I'm guilty of this, I wouldn't mind sticking around a bit longer to enjoy what I've worked so hard to attain. Then you may want to change your spending habits. I can assure you that most Christians around the world don't think like this. Most Christians around the world, many of whom are undergoing persecution, can't wait to enter the kingdom of heaven. If this is you, please don't walk away this morning thinking that there's no hope. The good news is, is that Jesus came to save sinners. He came to save those entangled in sin and too preoccupied with the affairs of this world. There's grace and mercy at the foot of the cross. You're not too far gone. None of us are too far gone. 
I love how the late Tim Keller puts it. He says, we're more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared to believe. Yet at the very same time, we're more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. Let me leave you with that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the acceptance that we have in Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you that he washes a multitude of sins. Lord, if we find this desire in us, if we find that our, our heart is with the treasures of, of this world, Father, would you break us of this? Lord, would you convict us of this? Would you help us to change uh, that message that we're sending to the world? Father, I thank you for the generosity of this church. Lord, would you use our small gifts to, to enlarge your kingdom all around the world? Father, we pray that you would do this. We pray that you would do this in Jesus' name. Amen.